Hello, and welcome to the Craft Brewed Music Podcast, music interviews for serious listeners. You may have heard of our curated music discovery app. The podcast lets us dig deeper and get to know the creators of that music, as well as others that will broaden your horizons. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brewed Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brewed Music artist. Our guest today is Eric Booth. I could go on and on about his lengthy and decorated resume. He's worked with Lincoln Center, Juilliard, Carnegie Hall, and the Kennedy Center. He's worked with many of our country's largest symphony orchestras. He's worked all over the world in all kinds of settings, from corporate boardrooms to shantytowns. We're going to talk today about what he's been working at. He's a teaching artist, and he's been central to the development of the field of teaching artistry. He's generally referred to as the father of the teaching artist profession. He's got a new book out for those who don't know what teaching artistry is and for those who do know but would love to learn more about how to support this work. The book is Making Change, Teaching Artists, and Their Role in Shaping a Better World. Eric Booth, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So it's been interesting as Aaron and I have prepped for this uh, conversation. I met Eric a number of years ago and worked on uh, a project with him through the Community Engagement Lab and the electric violinist Tracy Silverman, who I still work with in my management business. Um, So I've been exposed to his philosophies and his methodologies and his work and teaching artistry in general for a while. Um, and so it was interesting talking with and preparing uh, for this with Aaron, who uh, was one of those people who didn't know what teaching artistry was. And so I'd like to start the conversation with the, the point I was at before I started your book, which is, what is teaching artistry? All right, let's start with the big question. And Aaron, I would say you and Almost all of the world population don't really have a sense of what teaching artistry is. So in general, it's different than being an artist, and it's different than being an artist who teaches. It is an artist who expands her set of skills to be able to creatively engage people directly. So it isn't just an artist who makes stuff and shares it with the world. It's an artist who usually makes stuff and shares it with the world, but goes the extra step to actually engage with that public to, and here's the number one job of a teaching artist, to activate the artistry of other people, that huge, amazing, universal capacity we all have, activate that, and then guide that creative power into a variety of different purposes. And so a teaching artist in a school may activate artistry to increase academic achievement or to create greater engagement in school. Or a uh, teaching artist can activate the artistry of people in a community to generate new creative ways for that community to thrive together, to solve social challenges together. For example, like I recall not long ago, working in South Dallas on the problem of food deserts and activating the creative potential of people in the community, a solution to an intractable problem arose. So a teaching artist is a kind of a catalyst for taking the creative potential latent in participants, activating it and guiding it toward a social purpose. Uh, the uh, the book is 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 great in the way it's structured in that you get a 
an, an abstract idea of the concept, but also it's infused with uh, examples uh, that kind of bring into greater focus what the purpose and potential of this is. Could you give uh, another one or two concrete examples of teaching artistry? Uh, sure. Um, watch out. I could go on and on. So just shut me up, like hit the mute button after a couple of examples. We only uh, have six hours for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I'll come with examples of different kinds that come to mind. Um, for example, in the United Kingdom, where they have now legalized what's called social prescribing, where doctors can actually prescribe an artistic project and artistic engagement for a health benefit, and the government medical insurance pays for it. So uh, a a doctor works with a teaching artist and says, this client has this kind of anxiety problem or this kind of a life pattern that needs to be adjusted for health benefits. And they work with the teaching artist to actually change behavior patterns in life. Or another example, and this is in a, a number of refugee camps around the world. Um, as your listeners know, those you know displaced persons and refugee camps are really stressful places. They can be dangerous places. And teaching artistry creates a musical center in the middle of those camps where the usually separated populations, where people who have left one country and people who have left another may even be hostile to one another in the same camp, the one place they meet is in the music center with teaching artists creating both musical instruction and this one positive, joyful place in the middle of the camp, which the people who run these uh, camps say, not only does it reduce violence in the camp, not only does it give a kind of positive hopefulness to the young people in the camp, it improves morale of the staff of the camp because they know there is one successful place in the whole living arena of this camp. So there's two examples of teaching artistry used to address a really serious social challenge that has defied other kinds of intervention. And I'll give one more everyday kind of example before you hit the mute button. Uh, <laughs> of teaching artistry used widely in schools where, and some of your listeners may have heard of arts integrated instruction, where a teaching artist will work with a teacher and they'll take a regular subject matter. I'm thinking of advanced biology at this moment. And the teaching artist will create creative engagement projects actually working with the biological information. Uh, this one I'm remembering, the kids were studying how um, immunology works, like how immune cells actually fight infections right down to the minutiae of what the mitochondria are doing. And they then composed a piece of music that exactly captured uh, all of the things that were happening, and they had the student orchestra play the three-part Immuno Symphony, and it's a spoiler alert that the third movement is called the Rusty Nail, mm -hmm. and the body's immunological systems win at the end of the third act. Yeah, Aaron was noticing, you know, that a lot of these um, examples and a lot of the philosophies behind them um, are sort of just 
sort of uh, unlock, I think your words, Aaron, were unlocking the code of, you know, a better way to teach um, and educate, whether that's, you know, then uh, applied toward climate change or, you know, the classroom or wherever it may be, um, because you've stimulated that intrinsic motivation rather than the extrinsic motivation you talk about in the book of trying to please others. You're, you're suddenly working for your own, uh, to satisfy your own interests. You know, Brian, it's not even a better way to teach. It's the old way to teach, the way humans learned until we created oddball institutions like schools <laughs> where, you know, people just made stuff. Uh, I often don't use the word art anymore uh, because it has all the associations of fancy buildings and big money. I use the term make stuff you care about because that is the system that has you know, fostered human evolution all these millennia. And when you invite a community member or a classroom of kids to make stuff they care about and you create the circumstances and the environment where they really get it, that that's actually, that's the thing to do. Like it's okay and you're not going to screw up and it's going to be not only fun, but what is needed is you investing yourself in it, that's when learning goes into high gear. That's when community collaboration and community vibe goes into high gear. And that only worked for the last hundred, uh, you know, millennia until we started creating oddball institutions of learning. So the, you know, we're music people, Aaron and I, and, um, and presumably hopefully our listeners. Um, so the, the power of this is not something I'm skeptical about. Uh, you know, it's something I, I, I live and I assume it to be true. Um, but for those who are skeptics, um, there were a couple stories that had um, sort of measurable results that were really impressive. One was the uh, a performing ensemble uh, comprised of inmates at Sing Sing. Um, and I believe that none of the, uh, you know, upon release, none of the people who had participated in that program reoffended. Right. Um, and another was an example from, um, was it the, the Big Noise Project in Glasgow, Scotland? Yes. Where it was estimated by researchers that um, that project saved the city 29 million pounds in money that would otherwise have been spent in social support type uh, expenditures. Um, I imagine that sort of um, uh, quantifiable results um is something that's very important in trying to, to gain support for this. Yeah, it is. Although I will, I have to admit that our field has been pretty inept at organizing all of the energy that it takes to produce research that convinces a doubter. Uh, there's a ton of anecdotal research, which, you know, is easy to brush away. And there's a, a fair amount of, I guess I'd call it a mishmash of research that in reliable methodology uh, asserts, like proves a point, but it's like an odd specific point because it's academic research. It focuses on a narrow area that's easy to say, well, that's not exactly the key idea. There is one area where research made a really big difference. It's in a field in the U.S. called creative aging, which is teaching artists working with people in senior living settings or in community centers. And 
one guy, a Dr. Richard Cohen, finally was able to do research according to the methodological requirements of the U.S. government, which are extremely difficult. And other researchers just hadn't been able to do the double blind, you know, uh, reproving the effectiveness of the treatment. Anyway, he finally did that research in a way that the government could accept. And there has been this explosion of demand for creative aging services. In fact, it's the the fastest hiring area for teaching artists in the U.S. because what the research showed is working with older people and teaching artists, uh, their prescription drug intake decreases, their hospital stays get shorter, they actually live longer, their, um, you know, kind of vibe, the the happiness vibe, both for the staff and the people living there, go way up. And this saves money, something the U.S. institutions care about. So there's been this a dramatic increase in creative aging because it is the U.S. It saves money for institutions. Meanwhile, it happens to be incredibly good for human beings and creating much more joyful environments in these living situations. Uh, there's, if uh, any of your listeners are interested, uh, they should look up an organization called Lifetime Arts. They are really the U.S. forerunners in training teaching artists and develop helping to develop programs in creative aging. And there is a ton of research that asserts how powerful it is. Most of the other areas of teaching artist work haven't developed that kind of we can convince you research. But as you were starting to say, Brian, there's bits and pieces of it that are pretty promising. And then there's a lot of low lying stuff people don't even Uh, think to calculate. For example, there's 140 programs in the U.S. that are music for social change programs. Programs usually in poverty areas where kids work intensively around music, and I mean intensively, 10 to 20 hours a week in many cases. And they don't really calculate it, but these are communities where high school graduation rates are in the 60 to 70 percent. And in those programs, their high school graduation rate is 99 to 100%, and their continuing education, higher education matriculation rate is, again, between 99 and 100%. So, you know, it is barely even reported as this is an outcome, but that is a huge benefit for those communities to have kids who are fully engaged, learning hard, and actually being intrinsically motivated to pursue higher degree learning so that they can have more agency in their lives. I'm really glad that you uh, touched on a couple examples uh, that are in the sphere of medicine. You you emphasize uh, personal relevance as being very important in the practice of um, of teaching artistry. And, uh, my, I don't know if Brian mentioned to you, my, my day job is a neurologist, uh, here in Seattle. And, uh, the notion of, uh, social prescribing, uh, is a very exciting concept that I hope that we can borrow from the, the UK as something that, uh, uh, is actually a, a covered, uh, prescription and creative aging uh, as someone who works with, uh, patients with dementia and people who've had strokes and disability that, uh, results from that uh, is a very uh, ex- exciting uh, set of um, 
possibilities that I hope that that we can harness in our community uh, as well uh, to uh, to improve uh, outcomes, longevity, and uh, prescribing less, you know, uh, antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs when we can actually harness the brain's native chemistry to do the work. Yeah, Aaron, I didn't know you were a medical doctor. That's I'm glad I brought up those examples. And I can assure you, social prescribing is coming. There are pilot experiments happening around the U.S. One I'm working on in Massachusetts, uh, we're partnering with actually, um, you know, um, insurance companies, medical insurance companies that are testing out whether, in fact, this can work for them. Uh, and it can. It, do, it does in England. It does in other countries that are experimenting with it. So fortunately, you are young enough that social prescribing will appear in your working lifetime. And instead of pharmaceutical reps, we'll have teaching artistry reps going hospital to hospital. Wouldn't that be gorgeous <laughs> to actually have a consultant to say, you know, I think I think you need to be in a chorus. Uh, you know, you're feeling isolated and a little depressed. There's this chorus that I'm going to I'm going to prescribe that you be, you know, a a second soprano in this chorus. <laughs> yes, I want I want a consultant without a PowerPoint, but it has like a like a tuner for the chorus. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about kind of rounding up, um, you know, big big data on some of these things, taking you know the the areas in which the data is anecdotal and, and pulling something together in larger studies is something you address in the section of the book on what would be possible if you were to receive a, a, a big investment in this, whether that's a big donation or a governmental uh, change of, of uh, direction of attention toward this. Um, so how would that look if that were to come to pass? Well, um, I know a lot of your listeners have best friends who are billionaires. <laughs> so it may just work in the quirky way that uh, we finally get on the radar screen of <clears throat> major philanthropists or major philanthropical foundations. Uh, one of the challenges, perennial challenges of teaching artistry is that it's almost invisible. So while we're jumping up and down enthusiastically proclaiming the many benefits and in modest ways being able to share data, to share some impact reports, even those go largely unrecognized, even within the arts. So one of the, the, I think the notion of actually having serious research is contingent on having greater visibility. So when we do get that first uh, $20 million grant, uh, I think it's, it need, would need to be divided up partly to create visibility for what already exists uh, so that it doesn't seem like some weird, arcane, artsy thing that is now claiming miraculous snake oil benefits. But second of all, to actually support researchers, not just to do the arcane academic study that, you know, kids who learn the xylophone really early are faster music learners when they get to fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. I mean, that's good academic work, and there's a, a lot of a lot of libraries full of that kind of stuff, but it doesn't add up to more than the sum of its parts. We need a robust study from a major research organization 
I'm thinking the Rand Company, to the Rand Corporation to actually take on key aspects of these teaching artist claims and teasing it apart so it doesn't just sound like hype. And we tease apart the part that maybe was a little bit of hype because we didn't actually have data and the truly effective parts that if you're in the room, you can't miss it. A blind goat can't miss most of the effectiveness of teaching artistry if you're in the room. Mm. And so the, it, it being so striking that a, that a blind goat is moved, <laughs> what, <laughs> what is it about teaching artists? Why are they so powerful? You know, it's a, it's a human thing. It's this universal capacity of artistry that lights up kids, and we recognize it in kids. And then our social structures in the U.S. are designed to, I would say, diabolically squelch it in the majority of Americans. Although, God love the artisans. God love the people who keep the arts active in their lives. Um you know, it's the part that gives their lives meaning. When artistry is engaged, you feel like you're alive. You feel like you're making stuff that matters in the world. You're a better partner to other people in the world. It's this human thing that we have managed to squelch with our commercial and institutional priorities that teaching artists have this gentle way of charming into activation. I've, you know, all the years that I've done workshops with people who are not likely to go yippy the arts, you know, school superintendents and, uh, you know, high-tech metallurgical engineers and boards of directors of Federal Express. Uh, in fact, when I would work with the groups like that, the assignment usually was, we, we want to boost our creativity, but no art. None of the fluffy, touchy-feely crap that you people like, but we know you know something about making fresh, creative ideas, and we want that without the artsy stuff. And so you do the same work you would do with kids or people in a community. You activate their artistry. You just don't use an artistic vocabulary. And sure enough, 20 minutes later, they're creating stuff. They have the same kind of look of wonder on their faces that 11-year-olds do and that people in a community do. It's this universal human capacity that teaching artists happen to have specialized in being able to target, being able to activate, and being able to guide toward a purpose that matters to the group. What other strategies are there for... When I think about uh, putting myself in the role of a of a teaching artist, one of the biggest challenges seems to be that that tapping confidence in a world that where people are, are taught to believe that they do not have artistic ability, that they do not have um, the ability to to draw beyond a, a you know a nine year old level. Yeah, you know, uh, it's the mistake we always make in the U.S. of assuming artistry is the same thing as artistic media. Uh, so usually with adults, and especially adults in, in non-arts-designated spaces, um, I have to remind them or activate that part of themselves where their artistry is naturally activated. Um, I can give you a little example, a little challenge right here for you, Aaron. 
Um, what is one place in your medical work where you find you're having to like uh, improvise? You're having to make, you kind of like make stuff up on a regular basis. It's an interesting specific area of your work where you find yourself looking, looking at the ceiling to think about how to do something in a new way because it hasn't ever kind of been like this before. Can you think of a specific area of that work? I think uh, the the, uh, the instance that's coming to mind is where I, there's a constellation of symptoms, which could be a number of things, but I do not have a exact answer for right. uh, that person uh, that I'm talking to and how to explain to them that I don't know, but I have ideas and a plan. Um, if we were in a workshop now, I would start to invite you to unpack what's going on. What, what kind of attending are you bringing to that unusual set of circumstances? What kind of communication, uh, empathy are you bringing to have to explain to people the uncomfortable reality of ambiguity and bring them into your inquiry mindset rather than the delivery of expertise mindset, that's when you're slipping into your artistry. All of us who have the good fortune of having those kind of spaces in our work or in our hobbies or in our relationships or in our playing with kids at home, we know the different feel of that work. It's that we don't invest in it. We don't create larger spaces for it. And we definitely don't do what teaching artists get to do, which is work in a dedicated project so that, in fact, we recognize, oh, this is the space where that part of myself that feels like I'm in flow and it like uses this interesting part of the way I think and feel, that's high value in this place. Uh, and I don't have to be the all-know-it expert. That's when we activate that energy and then we start to make something that's never been there before. And I can tell you in South Dallas, when we discovered the solution to food deserts in that area was not, you know, kind of entrepreneurship zone regulations, but grandmothers, grandmothers who created food festivals to celebrate ethnic cooking traditions that they wanted to pass on to younger people. And by God, they needed these kind of food co-ops to produce, to find the actual foods that they needed to cook from their native lands. And food co-ops began to arise where every supermarket had failed in the past. It was intrinsically motivated by the community. It came out of the joy of these food festivals, multi-generational, that had arisen and those uh, those food co-ops uh, continue to thrive. That's exciting. And with regard to the ambiguity tolerance issue you were talking about, you know, that's um, you you talk in in the book about a, um, a situation, a Harvard Medical School study where um, med school students, you know, worked with that sort of that exact scenario, um, and learning learning to slow down experience art in a certain way and then apply that transfer that to medical real life medical situations um so that's another example perhaps not of a quantifiable study but i mean certainly a uh respected authority kind of backing the uh authenticity and uh, and the and the uh legitimacy of these approaches 
I'm glad you brought that up, Brian. Uh, your listeners can look up the work of Alexa Miller. Alexa Miller was the teaching artist involved in that study. And th by discovering how a teaching artist working just six times with doctors in training in Harvard Medical School, learning how to diagnose diseases, by working with them looking at paintings in the Gardner Museum, their acuity for how you put together what a painting means, how you observe and pull together pieces of information you hadn't noticed by looking more carefully, that greater diagnostic acuity translated directly to their medical practice. And in fact, that study was so strong, there, there actually has become quite a body of reliable research around it. And no fewer than 17 partnerships between museums and medical schools around the U.S., as a result of that first study. So that's a case where innate artistry that had been squelched by all the fears and anxieties of medical school and getting it right, by creating protocols that allow them to explore ambiguity in looking at symptoms more carefully, led to much more accurate medical diagnosis. And this is a case where we have the data that shows art saved lives in this case. It's amazing to me that I haven't heard this. I haven't seen this in the news anywhere. Aaron, were you aware of, of the fact that there's that many partnerships no. like this between medical no. schools and museums? No. And I was in medical school in Boston and went to the <laughs> Isabella Stewart Garden Museum all the time. And I never, <laughs> never had anyone made an educational connection for me. It came a little after your time. Aaron, probably. This is all really in the last 10 or 12 years that uh, the realization that this teaching artist capacity, and it largely came through visual thinking strategies, which is a, a teaching artist approach developed in museums. We've started to discover how much wider the application of that technique is. And it was about 12 years ago, I think, that the research hit with Harvard Medical School. It's fascinating. Yeah, I'm excited that it's there. An area that, that comes up in the book several times, but that we haven't discussed at length here is the application of teaching artistry uh, toward one of the most existential threats of our time, climate change. Could you talk a little bit about some, some uh, ways in which the field is approaching that problem? Oh, yeah, this is, boy, I'm passionate about this one. Uh, people think generically about the relationship between arts and climate crisis response. And God love them, lots of artists make artworks that have environmental themes and they claim great transformative effects. And I appreciate, I'm grateful that they're drawing focus to the environment, but transformation, I ain't seeing. Uh, people listening to, you know, a, a a piece of, of complex music that is derived from algorithms of melting glaciers. And maybe it's kind of interesting to listen to that music, but I don't leave that performance with a new commitment to change my environmental practices. What teaching artists do, because they actively engage the participants, is they actually change the way you understand the environmental issues, because they tap what is personally relevant for you. They mix the discovery of facts. They don't just 
unload facts. One discovers the facts of the situation through the work and people actually change what they do at the end of it. I'm thinking of uh, one example of this. Uh, many of you probably know the opera singer Joyce DiDonato, one of the great soprano divas of our time. And she created a one-woman uh event called Eden, which is environmentally themed. And she's doing a world tour of opera houses with her environmentally themed piece. But in every city she goes to, she partners with a teaching artist who goes to work in a, in a, a community of poverty, gathers a group of kids to work on a local environmental issue, um, creating stuff the uh, creative engagement, the series of workshops where we actually have some research and it's available on a website I can let your listeners know that shows something like 80% of the kids who went through these workshops have a clear sense of the kinds of actions they want to take to respond to the environmental crisis. They also ended up on stage with Joyce singing a song that one of the kids had done. So they had a high impact, kind of mind blowing opera house experience they never would have had in their lives. And that's part of the aspiration from the International Teaching Artists Collaborative that in the future, every high arts tour have this community component takes a teaching artist as a part of the work to work in a local community. So not just the $250 ticket buyers get some benefit from the experience, but the kids in the neighborhood actually have a positive creative experience that's in direct connection. My big fantasy, of course, is that every Taylor Swift tour city has a teaching artist going into the community working on young girls' empowerment issues. Mm. And uh, so the thematic connection of expanding that artist's reach right into the communities, teaching artists can take that and run with it. And there is, I wouldn't call it deep research, but research from the Eden experience that shows in every city dramatic impact on the participants. We haven't had Taylor on the show yet, but uh, yes, scheduling stuff. <laughs> okay. But we'll bring that up to her when we when we talk to her. <laughs> I'm sure she's going to want to go for that. Just a matter of time with a show this big. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, existential threats, uh, on a on a on a slightly smaller scale, but uh, arts in communities and in cities, uh, the opera, theater, are are also under a threat from from lack of. Uh, people uh, taking advantage of these these entities in the, in the community. I just got a, a mailing within the last year that one of our uh, theaters we enjoy going to, the Book at Repertory Theater here in Seattle, is closed because of um, a combination of COVID and, and lack of, of ticket sales. And one of the exciting um, applications of, of teaching artistry is to, to revitalize the community's engagement uh, in the arts. And I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the, the notion of the very open rehearsal and how this can uh, stimulate interest in, uh, in the arts. Uh, sure. I'm happy to. And I, like you, I'm, I watch with great sadness as the, the arts industries that have not reinvented the way they relate to the wider public, or as the business people like to say, expanded their value proposition, is really hitting them now. 
they're really starting to die off the way we were predicting 20 years ago. What teaching artists are really experts at opening up the richness that is contained in those works of art in those special buildings. It's not like they do PR and it's not like they do lectures about how great they know how to open up and create access uh, to the richness of the artistic connection, connecting to what's in those rich works of art that most Americans who aren't in the art club really don't know how to access. So why would they want to spend $60 to go on somebody else's schedule to go have a kind of uncertain experience? That's where teaching artistry can guide people in. And one example that you raised, uh, just one small tool we use that I've helped develop is called a very open rehearsal. It's different than an open rehearsal, which some of us who had field trips to symphony halls may recall, where you're ushered into the back of the audience while the orchestra kind of goes through the motions of a final rehearsal. You can't really hear what's being said and you can't really get the difference between what they did before they went back and did it again, what was different. What works in a very open rehearsal is a somewhat smaller venue. It's often a small ensemble. And the big difference is two differences. Number one, they are really rehearsing. It isn't just a going through the last the motions of a final rehearsal to brush it up. They are really doing the mechanical work of making the piece work. And number two, the audience can raise its hand, stop the musicians, and ask a question. And God love them. When the musicians pause and turn and are just their human selves dealing with the intricacies of what they know and, and how it how things work. Uh, I recall one that I went to back-to-back questions from the audience. They were working on a, uh, gosh, what was it? It was a Russian string quartet. And one question was from this very self-important musical expert who said, you know, around, uh, you know, the measure number 37, those four measures there, I've never really understood what they were trying to get at. What is your interpretation of those measures? <laughs> and the poor musicians kind of looked at each other and shrugged and said, you know, I don't, we didn't think there's any special meaning. We're just kind of working on this little issue in that section. And the next question was from a teenager who'd never heard a string quartet before and said, why do violinists always have hickeys on their necks? <laughs> and to hear, hear the musicians say, you know, it really was a problem in high school. Like, this is what it comes from. And it's like a real thing for violinists. And the, the opening up they do over the course of a 90-minute very open rehearsal, when they finally perform those six minutes of that movement at the end of the session, you get a standing ovation like you haven't heard because people in that audience have this mind-boggled recognition of the level of nuance and detail and care and technical precision that these people are working on that they never could have had access to otherwise. So it's a welcome, a human-to-human invitation into it. Uh, one last thought. Uh, for a number of years, I taught the teaching artist program at Juilliard. So here's Juilliard. You know, it's like the, the Vatican. 
And they're learning to be teaching artists while they're becoming, you know, going to be the future great violinists of the world. So one assignment I gave them in their two-year teaching artist program, the one that was the scariest to them, they would lie awake for nights in advance of this assignment in terror, was that they had to get on a New York City public bus and engage people in substantive conversations about music before they got off. And they were afraid they were going to be like beat up. (laughs) They were like so far apart from the recognition that everybody has a really big musical life. And if you can tap that shared love of music, once people are into their sharing about music with one another, it becomes really interesting that you've gone deep down this rabbit hole called Baroque viola. And like, there's interesting stuff in there that I want to find out more about. So it's about connecting as people engaged in music to open up the natural curiosity about somebody who knows a whole lot about a weird little section you never heard of before. And then you want to hear it. So that's what teaching artistry can do is tap the natural human expansiveness and joyfulness of artistic engagement and get out of the preciousness and perfection business that the high arts industries have found themselves locked into. And find those universal threads between us. Another example Aaron and I were talking about earlier um, that's so topical today, obviously, is the Combatants for Peace project. Oh, boy. I was just in touch with that guy. Uh, For your audience members, definitely Google it. It's amazing. It's an organization that has worked 20, 30 years comprised of Israelis and Palestinians who together are working for peace, and they produce theater and art pieces, often on the border, where they invite audiences from both communities to come to this shared artwork. And they have dedicated themselves uh, for 20, 30 years to finding peace through art making and bringing audiences of both parties together. And there is uh, the statements that are of both heartbreak and continued hopefulness coming out of uh, my colleagues there at uh, this week. You know, it's it's kind of the most heart-wrenching place for a teaching artist to be. And from that springs this resilience of how they're dedicated to trying even harder, creating new pieces that address the horror that's happening in their lives right now. Well, I genuinely hope they all get to return to that stage together. The uh, obviously very important work, all of these scenarios we've talked about, Eric has, um, in conjunction with this new book, launched the 5,000 New Advocates Campaign. He's raised funds to make these books available at cost for those who are able and for free for those who are not. Um, anybody who's got, uh, who knows of people that would benefit from this information um, in terms of uh, enhancing their own work in the field or supporting the field. Information is available at teachingartistsmakingchange.com. We'll include that in the description, along with a few other links of interest. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about all this with us today. Well, it's a pleasure. And apologies to your regular listeners that there was no music today. (laughs) A first. 
we can assign them to go immediately listen to remu- to music to recover from what we did to you today. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much. A pleasure. Thank you for listening. Craft Brewed Music, both the podcast and the Music Discovery app, has the mission of promoting this music and these artists. We can't do that without ears on the music. So if you like what you've heard here, we're going to ask you two small favors. First, tell someone about the podcast. Second, go to the App Store or Google Play, download the Craft Brewed Music app, and try a free two-week trial of the curated streaming service. For more information, visit us at craftbrewedmusic.com. Thanks again, and see you next time. <laughs>